A significant shift has occurred in Australia in the last few decades away from union power and blue-collar jobs to the current reality of exploited workers on a very large scale. Many a business has in fact uh, structured itself to avoid paying the minimum wage. Ben Schneider's is an investigative journalist, mostly for the age, where he has uh, specialised, I think we can say, on the topic of wage theft, writing oodles of articles about it. Ben's now written a book called Hard Labour. It takes a step back and asks, how did we get here? And is there scope for correction? Ben, case in point, would you tell us the story of the Rockpool Hospitality Group, perhaps starting with a chef found crying on the street in Melbourne? Yeah, so this is going back till 2018. And the chef was a, a migrant worker from South America. And she was here on a temporary visa. She was crying uh, uncontrollably on the street and she was approached by an executive who asked her what the matter was. She explained how she was treated at work, the hours of work, um, and, and really the story of exploitation. And from there, several weeks later, uh, I met this chef via the person who, who, who uh, consoled her on the street. So you were told about this incident and when you contacted the exec, she said she didn't like the idea that people who prepared her food at restaurants were being treated so badly. That's right. She'd enjoyed eating at this restaurant. It was one of her favourite places to go. And the idea there that the people who made the beautiful food were being treated so poorly that they were, they were crying inconsolably on the street just struck a chord with her. Now, Ben, there's always the possibility of exaggeration or misunderstanding or a one-off incident. As a journo, you'd be looking out for that? That's right. Like, you invariably, you know, sometimes you get people come to you with stories that are hard to prove or they're exaggerated or they're, they're not correct or they can't really go anywhere. So the, the work is really about trying to make sense of the story to see if there's any contradictions, if, it's, um, if it holds together. And then if you think it's got significance to do the work to, to pull together a broader narrative, Does this, is this representative of something bigger or is it just a one-off? In this case, that's the work I had to do with the story from this chef. And I quickly realised that there was a far bigger scandal than just one person's story of exploitation. You uh, found what appeared to be underpaying and exploiting at least some of uh, around 3,000 strong workforce. That's right. The, the Rockpool Dining Group was the largest high-end uh, restaurant conglomerate in Australia before the pandemic. Employed something like 3,000 people. It had 16 restaurant brands, including its flagship, the Rockpool um, Bar and Grill, which is, you know, the, some of the more expensive restaurants in the country in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. And it had a range of other restaurant chains as well. Now, you spent months looking into it, but there is sensitivity at work. The age, uh, because Rockpool was founded by and was still fronted by the high-profile chef Neil Perry, and he was a columnist for the paper. That's right. So, so Perry's a, a really well-known chef. He's been an ambassador for Qantas. He's, got a, he's had a column for a long time in The Good Weekend, and he's probably one of the more famous chefs in Australia. His role at Rockpool was really the kind of front man for the, the business. He was also a, a minor shareholder. He'd sold a number of his restaurants into this bigger 
broader group a year or two before this for something in the order of $65 billion. Now, we'll get onto that a little later, but you and your colleague, Royce Miller, uh, did a survey of Rockpool rosters. What did you find? Yeah, so after meeting Lucia and then a number of other chefs that worked at Rockpool Group restaurants, we were leaked or provided with oodles of documents, rosters, internal company documents. The rosters in particular were very revealing. They showed that chefs were offering working, according to the roster, at least 60 hours a week. Now, they were only being paid for about 40. So in effect, they were doing 20 hours a week of unpaid overtime. They were paid a little above the award, but once they did that unpaid overtime, that extra 20 hours, they were being dramatically underpaid. It wasn't uncommon at busier times of the year that chefs might work 70 or 80 hours a week, so almost half their work unpaid. And these aren't people on big money. They might be a temporary visa worker who's getting paid something of the order of $50,000, $60,000, working 80 hours, 70 hours a week, doing 16-hour stretches on, on any one day. They could be walking from morning through to 1am the next day. Now, I have to ask you this. Could it have been an administrative error? It's hard to believe that that would be the case because it was systemic through the business. Workers at some of the restaurants were provided with receipts that showed both their rostered hours and their actual hours. So you could they were printing out, out of the, the computers on site, things that showed the extra hours they were working for nothing. On top of that, I, would, I eventually spoke to a number of senior executives or managers that worked at the business, and it was commonly understood that part of the business model was to squeeze costs and to squeeze labour. Now, the power Rockpool held was primarily over the visa status of its workers. Please explain. Yeah, so there's a myriad of visas in Australia's workplace system, and among them were the old 457 visas, which have been rebadged. But essentially what they do is that an employer sponsors a worker, whether from Asia or Latin America or, or wherever or Europe, and for those four years, you're tied to that employer. Now, you can leave that job, but if you don't find another job and a sponsor who's willing to support you and pay several thousand dollars, you'll be out of the country in no time. So essentially, you've got a lot of leverage over the people on visas um, through that arrangement. So the employer has a lot of power over them, their future, and a lot of them want permanent residency. So they see these jobs and these visas as a path to staying in Australia. Now, some were on student visas, is that right? Yes, yeah, student visas, that's been a real area of, of labour exploitation in Australia, particularly international students and particularly students at some of the private training colleges, which in effect have worked as, I guess, visa factories for people to come into Australia, purport to do a course, but really do low-wage labour. Now, the shift in migration policy is one of the structural changes underpinning what we're talking about. Yeah, all these things that we've that are discussed in the book are really trends that have developed over 30, 40 years. If you look at the history of Australia's migration system, in the post-war years when we had the first big expansion, typically uh, people were permanent migrants from Europe and later from Asia. From the 1990s onwards, the system started to change and we started to see 
at first a gradual use of temporary labour and then an acceleration of that through, like I mentioned before, a myriad of different visa schemes and programs. The 457 was an important visa that was introduced in the early Howard years and it's morphed into a bunch of other different visas. Um, The growth in the international student market, which originally was from people who could support themselves from wealthier countries, but in the end, it grew to such a state that people who came here really needed to be able to work. But the visa restrictions were such that there was a number of things that gave an employer leverage over these students, uh, including limits on the number of hours they could work. Now, you mentioned previously that uh, celebrity chef Neil Perry had sold the business to Quadrant. Tell me about Quadrant. Yeah, Quadrant is a Australian private equity firm. Now, private equity is really the I'd say the business model of the the current age whereby, you know, it's a very aggressive form of of operation where a private equity firm would typically buy a business, maybe a struggling business, load it with debt and cut costs aggressively and then look to sell it within five to seven years. They don't typically act as long-term owners of a business. It's a very quick process. It can be quite often quite a brutal process. And Quadrant was one of those firms. It was run by Chris Hadley. Mm. He's the the chair of Quadrant, described by the Finn Review as a buyout industry legend, and that's his business model. You buy, you fiddle around a bit, and then you're on sell. Yep, and they became the owner of the Rockpool Dining Group. They took two separate businesses, merged them, and wanted to create this kind of giant, sprawling nationwide empire of high-end restaurants. They aggressively loaded the company with debt. Some of the money was lent from Quadrant itself at very high interest rates, which had the benefit to them of, you know, an income stream from the business, but also reducing, and I should say this is all lawful, the profitability of the business. And they also aggressively pursued cuts to labour costs and suppressing labour costs. Tell me the story of a skilled Indonesian chef who worked at Rockwell's Spice Temple restaurant. Matthew worked at the restaurant for several years with his wife. He said that he'd been underpaid during that period and was owed something of the order of more than $10,000. Like many people who had worked there, he eventually had to leave the country and pursued the company unsuccessfully for several years uh, to get his money back. There was a process that was brought in on the back of the reporting whereby Rockpool eventually brought in some auditors and admitted that they'd been underpaying people. So there was a redress scheme brought in after the reporting by the age, but not everyone got what they thought they were deserved, and Matthew was one of those people. Now, Rockpool doesn't pay company tax, you say? That's right. The way the company was structured was that on paper it was losing significant amounts of money, so of course you only pay company tax on the profits you make, but this is a feature of private equity investments, and again, you know, this is a lawful way of doing business, but it's a way whereby profitability is reduced and company tax is quite often not paid because there's no profits on paper. The company business itself was cash flow positive, but its net profit wasn't there. It was losing money. So private equity is growing and you write, or you ask, is this the best way to organise an economy and a society? What has Rockpool's response been Ben and Quadrant, the private equity firm that owns them. The initial response when I came to them with this 
these allegations and, and the documents I had was that they claimed that they were likely forgeries and they threatened to sue me. A week later, we were able to report in far greater detail after more than 100 people contacted us with details of their underpayment. This wasn't just confined to a few quadrant restaurants. It was across nearly the whole group. Within a few months of threatening to sue me and saying that I'd been had and all the documents I had were forgeries, they had set up a redress scheme, brought in the international accounting firm PwC and started repaying people. So it was quite a dramatic shift in its position, in its public position. How much have they paid back? We know they paid back one year and they then they extended that and that was around one and a half or so million and then that extended for another further six or so years. It's likely, they've never confirmed this, it's likely it's in the order of $10 million. It's probably the case that it's only a fraction of what they've owed. The record keeping was so poor, you had to almost be able to prove that you'd been underpaid and you need to needed to have kept detailed records of your hours and your pay slips going back years. A lot of records were absent from both the company side and also from employees. So there may have been something of the order of $10 million paid back, but the likely figure what people were allegedly underpaid might be far, far greater than that. Does Rockpool say they're operating differently now? Yeah, after the reporting, Neil Perry told me via a text message that they were now acting lawfully and they were probably one of the only the few restaurant businesses in Australia that were paying award wages that is paying the legal minimum wage. And I, I haven't heard stories since that, that people are being underpaid. There's obviously been the pandemic, which had a dramatic effect on hospitality. So this was something that wasn't just confined to Rockpool, as, as Perry points out, it was across the whole industry. Nearly every big restaurant company had examples or cases of, of wage underpayment. Why hasn't the Fair Work Ombudsman been more effective? It's a good question. The Ombudsman's approach to regulation has been light touch to work with businesses, to have an educational function. That started to shift at the back end of the last decade. Um, They started to take a more aggressive approach and to do more litigation. But the level of enforcement and litigation of, of companies is still relatively low. Not many cases end up in court. You know, it's been a cost of doing business that you're very unlikely to get caught by the wage inspectorate in Australia if you're doing the wrong thing. Now, the elephant in the room here is unions, which you mentioned very briefly at the beginning. And, of course, uh, I remember a time when unions represented about half the workforce, but it's down to, what, 14% now? That's right, yeah. And in the private sector, it's even it's even lower. I think this is a big factor in the shift in Australia's labour market and economy over the last 30, 40 years. As you noted in the early 80s, when Bob Hawke was elected, about half the workforce was unionised. And whatever the faults of unions, they play a vital role in a watchdog function, essentially. They're watching what's going on. There's an ability for people to, to raise issues, whether it's pay or safety. They're vital in a lot of, of low-wage work. In hospitality, there's barely been anyone unionised. The levels of unionisation might be 1% or 2%. It's similar in other industries where wage theft is common, whether it's horticulture or any sort of industry where there's a a high level of casual work or 
insecure work. We have done programs in the past on the misbehaviour in agriculture. Now, you make the interesting point that uh, public and political rhetoric has changed from egalitarian, which uh, John Howard actually used quite a lot, to Scott mm. Morrison's aspiration, which I must say echoes a term by Mark Latham. It does. And I, I think this is an important shift in Australia's kind of imagining of ourselves. Like if you looked at the Australia of the late 70s, whatever its faults, it was an incredibly more equal society. Um, it had levels of income inequality that were more equal than Scandinavia is now. Over that time, there's been a dramatic shift in the way that both income and wealth inequality have moved. It's a far more unequal society. In the OECD, we rank 13th out of 38 for income inequality or high levels of income inequality. And I think the language and the way we think about ourselves has changed as well. And I went through a database of speeches and statements by by Howard and, and, and Morrison, and you could see that shift. Howard used to talk about the egalitarian Australian, the kind of the Australian the strain of the 19th century, the, all the myths and, and stories and legends of, of a more equal Australia. Before I let you go, how do we turn the ship around, Ben? I, I deal with this in, in the book and it, it's, it's tricky. Like this has been a 40-year redistribution of, of wealth and power from people with not much to people with a lot. I think in the first instance, it just involves a number of smaller changes and then bigger changes, but it's got to be a project from government to take inequality seriously and to do things to improve it. And in the labour market, that would be dealing with issues around job insecurity, um, dealing with dealing with issues around deunionisation, sort of accepting that there is a legitimate role for unions in the economy, that inspectorates like the Fair Work Ombudsman also need to play a beefed up role to deal with enforcement and to improve the standard of living for a lot of people. You make the point that real change won't come for either low-paid or illegally underpaid workers until there's a, a public recognition of how bad things are. I think that's right. I think there's a degree of ignorance about or not a willingness not to acknowledge what things are like. I got a really interesting email today from a reader in response to the extract of the book running and they said in their work they were just shocked by meeting people who were um, cycling between contract to contract, quite often temporary migrants. And it, it's really when you scratch the surface and you look at how people work in industries, whether it's in some hospitality roles or in food courts or in horticulture or driving the food from Uber, quite often it's, it's a long way removed from the shinier version of Australian life. <laughs> Ben, thanks for that. Ben Schneider's investigative journalist with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Ben's the author of Hard Labour, Wage Theft in the Age of Inequality. It's published by Scribe. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.